Section 27 of Wildlife on a Norfolk Estuary by Arthur Henry Patterson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. East Coast Notes, Chapter 2 Some Fish Notes, Part 3 The Viper Weaver. During the summer and autumn of 1906, the numbers of the lesser weaver, Tracurus vipera, taken in drawnets and trawls, both on the coast and on Braden, were in excess of those of any year I can remember. It may be that this phenomenally fine and warm period accounted for their abundance, as it undoubtedly did for the vast numbers of herring sile then found present in local waters. I have heard several persons speak of the painful consequences of contact with its ugly dorsal fin, although I have only known one or two seriously injured by it. No mercy has ever shown it on capture. I had never satisfactorily understood why the spines of this fish should be poisonous, and in certain instances I had concluded that there was a probability of the fish having come in contact with decaying animal matter, owing to its habit of grovelling on the sea floor. But at a meeting of the Norfolk and Norwich Naturalists in November 1906, some interesting information on this point was forthcoming. Dr. H. Muir Evans of Lowestoft sent in a short paper on Weaversting, or Trachinus venom, and Mr. J. O. Barley, M.A., gave an account of the structure of the poison apparatus of the weaver. The following is a condensed notice of these two communications, which were of more than local interest. There are two British species of weaver, Trachinus draco, the greater weaver, and Trachinus vipera, the less. The poison apparatus in both is the same. In each, it consists of poison glands, resembling sebaceous glands in relation with grooved spines. These spines are, one, those of the dorsal fin, which is coloured black, probably as a warning to other fish to prevent them biting. This fin, as the creature lies buried in the sand, is seen alone. 2. The opercular spine is more interesting. It has the form of a dagger, grooved along each edge, each groove containing a pear-shaped gland. The secreting cells of each gland are very large, elongated and arranged in columns. They give rise to an apparently colloidal and a granular substance, though whether these are successive stages of the same secretion or two separate secretions is unknown. There is no muscular arrangement for ejecting the venom. An eel catastrophe. In July 1905, one of the strangest and most destructive fatalities to eels I have ever known 
occurred to those in the waters of East Norfolk. The first intimation I received of it was by a postcard dated July the 19th to the effect that on Sunday three rods got never a bite all day at St Olive's but there are scores of dead eels floating in the river all in about the same stage of decomposition the salts generally gets the blame eels didn't ought to mind salt water i only saw one other dead fish a roach signed p e r i went to see what was the matter with the fishes and at first came to a wrong conclusion part of a letter i wrote to the county paper read as follows sir on a ramble round last saturday from reedham and haddiscoe to st olives i noticed several dead eels floating in the river and without giving much thought to the matter concluded they had been pitched out of the eel babbers stow boxes it is their practice to place their catchers in floating trunks until a certain time or when sufficient numbers tempt them to return and sell their wares to the wholesale buyers in these trunks there are usually weak and dying eels to be found and as a dead eel is a fly in the ointment and soon decomposes over it goes eels herein die from the results of pick stabs hook swallowing and such like but the numbers reported by various folks at different places and the fact of the majority being big eels some up to two pounds in weight as our yarmouth ferryman assures me must certainly point to something beyond ordinary accidents can it be that the recent hot weather has affected them in some way or other i should be greatly interested in hearing whether this dead eel business has been more than local a few days later a letter appeared signed triton who wrote sir no explanation on the problem of the dead eels referred to by mr patterson appears to be forthcoming and as the subject has an interest for a great many and has certainly been much speculated about may i observe as follows like mr patterson i was recently at st olive's and noticed a lot of corpses of eels travelling up and down on the tides and the same phenomenon appeared at cantley on moving my boat thither a few fish also were turned up at the latter place sailing up to bramerton i was told that many dead fish had been floating about the river the fish give i think the clue to the mystery if it ever was one for an old eel catcher whom i consulted at once observed i can say it tis a surridge those who saw no dead fish reasonably enough would not concede that sewage caused the mischief but advanced ingenious theories of electricity the eels getting into hot water etc 
probably the Norwich authorities have been employing that grand natural drain, the River Yare, once more. If it is not so, let the negative be given to the suggestion. Cannot Mr. Patterson cooperate with the responsible authority at Norwich to gradually accustom our fish and eels to a scientific diet of sewage? Surely this should not be impossible to the intelligence which of late years has choked the Norwich River with weeds. Holidaymaker, referring to this subject in the Angler's News, said, Dear Sirs, I have just returned from a yachting cruise on the Broadland waters, and whilst away I noticed in the Norfolk papers some remarks respecting the large number of eels which have died in the River Yare, etc. Now, I think the cause as put forth by a Norwich writer, that the sewage matter entering the river poisons the eels, is wrong although this is corroborated by a well-known naturalist. Firstly, because although the eels are lying dead in the reeds in hundreds, there is no marked mortality among other fish, roach, bream, etc., just an occasional fish being turned up here and there. Secondly, it is well known that eels thrive near sewers and filth, and that they do not get poisoned. I think the writer really meant refuse from chemical works or something of the kind. But I want to let you know what I have seen. My trip has been to Wayford Bridge up the Ant, a tributary of the Bure. Well, there are no chemical works, no sewers, or anything else of that nature there, and yet we sailed past eels turned up in vast numbers. In fact, in some places we had to give up the counting. I made many inquiries as to the cause of the eels dying off, and the major portion pronounced it to be the warmth of the water, and nothing else. One or two of the oldest inhabitants have recollections of something happening many years ago. No salt water has been up, and I am informed that, although the salt causes the eels to vomit, they are none the worse for it. I may say that a friend of mine also saw thousands of dead eels in the Waveney between Beckles and Yarmouth. My next letter to the Angler's News was as follows. Dear Sirs, I was interested in Holidaymaker's letter. Eels in Norfolk waters have turned up and died by thousands, some of them fine fellows. These fatalities occur only at long intervals. The fact of them turning up in the Bure and high up there too, goes to prove that to sewerage and chemical waste all the fatalities cannot be due. After a number of inquiries, I have come to the conclusion that asphyxiation from the effects of the great heat upon the mud in which they delight to lay, and the decay of vegetable matter, has had most to do with it. 
the mud stinks the decayed vegetation assists that stench and eels are peculiarly sensitive creatures although it is said they do not mind a temporary bit of burrowing into a decomposing corpse how soon they will turn up in a floating eel trunk the eel babbers know and watch for sickly tenants almost hourly in the busiest season a dead eel soon goes wrong and spoils its living fellows a dirty scum has risen to the surface and streaked white painted yachts with an offensive and filthy banding and it is a pretty good indication of the fermentation going on in the shallows below a good few rains are badly wanted for several days the rivers especially where bordered by reeds presented a gruesome sight the floating bodies of the eels being threaded in and out among the stems and weeks elapsed before the last traces of them had vanished the summer of 1905 was an exceptionally hot one with few tides of any strength in fact they remained abnormally low for a long period thus creating the disaster and nuisance and in no way helping to abate the unpleasantness of it the eel-catching season of 1906 more especially on braden and in the lower reaches of the rivers was a complete failure three hooks four fish culver an old-time bradener whose name is frequently mentioned in connection with a drain he once cut in the mud-flats and which has since deepened and lengthened considerably once set three night-lines at a sluice near the seven-mile car on the beckles river and going to them next morning found to his great surprise three eels and a pike fast thereon the pike had been prowling around and evidently looking upon one of the eels as an easily procured supper had seized it but the eel was not to be so easily settled by Aesop's lucius through whose gills it forced itself and coming out under the gill cover literally strung the unfortunate pike on the line whereon between the eel and a stake thrust into the margin of the bank it was kept a prisoner large smelts in the spring and autumn catches of smelts and at other seasons in the year large specimens are occasionally met with the following are some examples january the fourteenth eighteen ninety example eleven inches long five inches in girth five ounces in weight january the twentieth eighteen ninety example eleven and a half inches long five and a quarter inches in girth five and three quarter ounces in weight april the twenty second eighteen ninety example eleven inches long five and three quarter inches in girth six ounces in weight 
April the 22nd, 1890. Second example, 11 inches long, 5 and 3 quarter inches in girth, 7 ounces in weight. April the 20th, 1891. Example, 12 inches long, 5 and 3 quarter inches in girth, 6 ounces in weight. Cod's Food At one time, when large cods were frequently taken on long lines in this neighbourhood, it was a favourite amusement of mine to beg the stomachs from the various fishmongers and sort over the contents. It is surprising what a variety of species, and a number of them, a cod will gather and pack into its maw. I have found several herrings in one, fresh as when taken out of the water. Indeed, I have seen such herrings sold as fresh fish. I have found 17 Norwegian lobsters in one cod's maw, and various species of crabs in others. The Sunfish So far as I can ascertain, the oblong sunfish, Orthogoriscus truncatus, has not yet been recorded for the East Anglian seaboard, although specimens have been taken off the northeast of Scotland and also off the southwest coast of England. The short sunfish, however, has been several times recorded for East Norfolk, the last brought into Yarmouth, to the best of my knowledge, being one that had entangled itself in the herring nets belonging to a Scotch boat sailing out of this port. This was in October 1905. The arrival of this luckless and by no means handsome stranger caused much comment and provoked considerable speculation among the fish fraternity haunting the fish wharf as to its name, habits, etc. I heard of its capture on the day it was landed, but was unfortunately unable to visit the wharf that day. It was snapped up by some daring purchaser for four shillings, and dispatched to a London fish shop to serve as a drawer for customers, afterwards, no doubt, closing its career in the refuse box. As soon as I made my appearance on the fish wharf, quite a number of fishing folk surrounded me, and sought my opinion upon it, one man actually leading me to a rough pencil drawing limbed on one of the fish merchant's office boards, and much humorous and dialectic argument followed. But every one was perfectly satisfied when I made a correctly drawn lightning sketch of the fish in question, wherein the sunfish's huge dorsal and anal fins were placed astern of it, and the odd little buttonhole of a mouth depicted at the other extremity. "'That's it to a tea, said more than one, and, "'I told you, Bor, he'd tell you what it were,' said another. My drawing and a short extempore lecture left them all knowing something more about the beast, and all good-humouredly satisfied.' 
by such means has one to arouse a little interest in strange creatures that come to their notice in october eighteen ninety two mr t southwell when writing to me with regard to sunfishers taken off the east coast made mention of several captures remarking however that he was not sure that his was a complete list the following are well authenticated instances sixteen sixty seven mr southwell's rendering of sir thomas brown's account of this fish is thus quaintly given sometimes we meet with a molar or moonfish so called from some resemblance it hath of a crescent in the extreme part of the body from one fin unto another one being taken near the shore at yarmouth before break of day seem to sure and grunt like a hog as authors deliver of it the flesh being hard and nervous it is not like to afford a good dish but from the liver which is large white and tender somewhat may be expected the gills of these fishes we found thick beset with a kind of sea louse in the year sixteen sixty seven a molar was taken at monsley which weighed two hundred pound eighteen twenty one one taken november eighteen twenty one reference paget's sketch of the natural history of great yarmouth eighteen thirty four eighteen thirty five one from yarmouth now in the wisbeach museum eighteen thirty six november the thirteenth example from overstrand beach recorded in miss gurney's diary eighteen forty three an eighteen-inch example taken off overstrand eighteen fifty november two at lynn and one at salthouse eighteen sixty three october one at lynn eighteen sixty five thornham example four feet three inches from nose to tail from tip to tip of fins six feet weight two hundred and ten pounds recorded in the field january the seventh eighteen sixty five eighteen eighty seven september one at yarmouth eighteen ninety two in first week in october one was stranded in the river neen at sutton bridge eighteen ninety six september i obtained a small specimen which had been captured in a didle or large hand net over the side of a trawler the fish measured eighteen inches in length and two feet four inches from the extremity of the dorsal to that of the anal fin weight ten pounds nineteen hundred on september the fifth a two-foot example was taken in yarmouth roads nineteen o six december the following is a paragraph date uncertain 
from a local paper. A sunfish has been washed ashore upon the beach at Backton, and as it was in a distinctly game condition, was ordered to be buried by the Custom House authorities. They reach a considerable size and have occurred from time to time along our seaboard. There are few things natural over which greater mistakes are made than fishes. Exaggeration of size and weight is not a failing confined to those who angle and who make gross mistakes undoubtedly more through ignorance than by design. But many persons who meet with curious sea monsters seem utterly without a sense of proportion, and many guess the weight of a specimen far above or below what it actually is. Instances of this occur in reports received by Dr. Day in his British Fishers and in the field as above. The reader may compare a sunfish recorded by Dr. Day measuring four feet from snout to tail and eight feet across the fins, which weighed between 300 and 400 pounds, with the measurement and weight given of the fish taken in 1865. Jago's Goldsinny On June the 5th, 1906, one of my shrimper friends brought me an example of the Jago's Goldsinny, Tenolabrus rupestris, which had hitherto been unrecorded for Norfolk. It's measured about three inches in length, and at first sight, greatly resembled those white and almost colourless examples sometimes seen amongst goldfish. The black spot stood out boldly and well-defined on the upper part of the caudal fin, at its juncture with the body, and at once attracted attention. Details regarding its habits seem to be bare and meagre. Living in deep water, it does not appear to be taken except by the merest accident in some crab pot, although occasionally indulging in nibbling at the fisher's baits. Dr. Day gives it a bad report from a gastronomic point of view, stating that it has flesh bad, soft, insipid, foul-smelling of a greenish colour, but its reputation in this respect matters but little owing to its diminutive size. According to Day, it generally comes under notice through being stranded after heavy gales upon various parts of the coast. The above-mentioned example is now in the Tollhouse Museum. Topknots, Megrims and Witches I noticed the following paragraph in the Angler's News of December the 29th, 1906. The columns of the Angler's News for near upon two months this year contained correspondence which resulted from the capture of a Megrim, or Witch, at Folkestone. Before that, many sea anglers were in blissful ignorance of either of these denizens of the deep, yet they must be common enough in some parts. 
Take the North Sea, for instance. During the years 1903-1905, nearly 200,000 hundredweight were caught in this sea and landed by steam trawlers on the east coast. During the same period, and from the same grounds, 51,000 hundredweight of witches were landed. The correspondence referred to began in the first week in January 1906, over the capture of an innocent little Muller's topknot, Zeugopterus punctatus, captured on the previous Boxing Day at a sea-angling contest on Folkestone Pier. In the report of the competition appeared the following remarks. In the meantime, there were a few incidents to break the monotony and strain of six hours holding on, exciting sport. Mr. Clark, the proprietor of the local West End Photographic Company, brought down his tripod and camera and took some interesting pictures. Also, a clever photo of a megrim, which fell to the rod of Captain H. I give the local name of this freak, which is really a mule or bastard fish, between brill, sole, dab and place. To all appearance, it might have been a cross between a sole, brill, flounder or sand dab and a rockling. Some other high-flown descriptive matter as to colouring, etc., was added to the above. I at once replied, expressing astonishment at the remarkable description given to the little stranger, and assured the readers of the Angler's News that there was a true species known as the megrim or scoldfish, to which, among other Latin synonyms, was added the generally accepted name of Arnoglossus Laterna, and giving details, as far as known, of its habits and peculiarities. The report of a meeting of the British Sea Anglers Society, among other matters, including information with regard to the exhibition of the fish, Mr. Boyton submitted a fish very rare on the east coast, Zeugopterus punctatus, the whiff or topknot, Little Harry, in Cornwall, the brown fluke. It was certainly the finniest fish ever produced to the members. It was completely edged by fin. The tail even had two little fins. The prognathus lower jaw was a very marked feature. It was accompanied by a very nicely executed watercolour sketch. The next stage in the discussion was a letter of mine on January the 13th, giving a full description of the Muller's topknot, with a pen and ink sketch which was reproduced. Other letters for and against my finding appeared in subsequent issues, signed GC, WCN and WJC. The photograph was sent for my inspection, which proved at once and conclusively that the fish in question was no other than the Muller's topknot. This, on January the 20th, 
I emphatically asserted in the same paper. Mr. W. J. Clark, Fellow of the Zoological Society of Scarborough, identified the fish from my sketch and wrote an interesting letter upon it, dealing with its local status as follows. Mr. Patterson's excellent sketch represents Muller's topknot, Zeugopterus hurtus, being one of its many Latin synonyms, a fish which turns up in the trawls at Scarborough every now and then, not commonly, but sufficiently so as to have earned for itself from the fishermen the local name of velvet fish, from the peculiarly velvety feeling of the upper surface if stroked from head to tail. If rubbed the reverse way, the skin is rough and file-like, owing to the numerous small tubercles upon the scales pointing from head to tail. Many thanks for allowing me to see the photo, subsequently sent him, of the fish taken at Folkestone. I think there is no doubt that it is Muller's topknot. I should imagine the capture of this species upon a hook to be of unusual occurrence. I have not before heard of one so taken. All the specimens I have seen having been trawled. WCN, in a letter on January the 27th, very properly complained of the babel of names given to one and the same and every species. He wrote, Before leaving the Zeugopterus punctatus, I must remark, alas, another name, Zeugopterus hurtus, and what seems to hurt us most are its half-dozen or more aliases. What a pity it seems that our naturalist friends responsible for this are not more in agreement. Referring to this superabundance of Latinities, I replied as follows. Let me say that I cannot help every European naturalist picking his own pet's Latin name for the self-same fish. I suppose each one thinks his own the only correct and best one. Hence, when such small fry as myself have to sort over these names for our own lists, we usually pick which suits us best. Although I prefer to be guided by him who is the standard authority of the time, and at present that man is the late Dr. Day. The winding up of a very animated and interesting correspondence upon the top knot, a fish which one might have covered with one hand, was reached on February the 10th, when a wire from G.C. to the Angler's News was announced as follows. Representing Folkestone at meeting of National Council for Sea Angling, I took the opportunity of looking up the authorities at the British Sea Anglers Society rooms for the purpose of settling once and for all, if possible, the question of the correct definition of my megrim. I am pleased to be able to support Mr. Patterson. The illustration in Dodd 
is an exact facsimile, including the two small oval fins depicted in the drawing of Mr. Nichols. In the course of this discussion, a note from G.C. was published respecting another queer fish. He wrote, I send you a rough sketch of a peculiar fish of the soul order, called here a witch. It is taken occasionally in our trawls. The peculiarities are as follow. The underside is distinctly coloured, to all appearance, as if there were scales, although there are none apparent. The better description, perhaps, would be mottled. A neutral tone about the colour or shade of a silver tone photo. There is a bony ridge which runs from the apex of the gill and forms a nose. The eyes are set in bulbous cases so as to be used always. The mouth is small for the size of the fish with very small tooth formation. There is a slight coloration of carmine on the left side of the snout. The tail is wispy, but the fins, dorsal and ventral, both voluminous and reach from the head to the commencement of the tail. The gills are close and in two curves. The colouring of the upper part is much that of the light-coloured sole, but there are distinct markings of a darker shade. The looked-for discussion on this new topic proved abortive. In my own reply, I simply stated that I have the witch on my list, giving its legitimate name as pole or craig fluke, pleuronectes sinoglossus, although the long rough dab, hippoglossoides, limandoides, and the locally rarer sail fluke, rhombus megastoma, all on my list of Norfolk fishers, are by the fisher folk all classed under the silly name of witches. Here the witches remained until the above paragraph, dated December the 29th, 1906, appeared in the Angler's News. To this paragraph, I replied as follows. Sirs, now about these witches. Witch is a trade name that covers a lot of, perhaps, indifferent eating sea flatfishers, and is really a genteel name for offal in the flat department. Smacksman and others call the sail fluke, Arnoglossus megastoma, a witch. Naturalists term it as follows. Jago terms it Passa cornubiensis. Cuvier terms it Rhombus cardina. Donovan terms it Pleuronectes megastoma. Pennant terms it Pleuronectes pseudopalus. Risso terms it Pleuronectes Bosci. Risso again terms it Hippoglossus bosci. Nilsson terms it Rhombus megastoma. Richards terms it Zeugopterus 
Velivolans. Collet terms it Zugopterus megastoma. Gunther terms it Arnoglossus bosci. Winther terms it Zugopterus gotska. So you see what a lot of conjuring and mystification may be made with the shuffling of a few Latin names. The sailfluke and carter of couch are one and the same fish. This species grows to nearly two feet in length. I met with some nearly that length a few months ago in a fish shop. These had come into Lowestoft Harbour by a trawler and been carted to Yarmouth. We depend on Lowestoft for nearly all our trawl fish. I secured one and had it photographed, thinking it might come in useful some day. To the sail fluke as a witch may be added the pole or long flounder, Pleuronectes sinoglossus, termed by Linnaeus. This fish has a remarkably small head for its length, differing thus from the sail fluke, which has a whopper. The pole runs to 14 and 16 inches in length. One other, which, is the long rough dab, Hippoglossoides, Limandoides, termed by block, which is more like the sail fluke in its proportions. This does not run larger than 15 inches in length, according to Day, who gives that as the length of the longest known British example. But in January 1891, I obtained one 16 inches long. All these fishes are on my East Norfolk list. There is very little doubt that many unscrupulous fishmongers occasionally mix odd examples of witches with the true souls, for there is not much dissimilarity in shape to an inexperienced eye, although anyone well acquainted with the flavour of the latter would quickly detect a difference. A friend of mine, a local fish merchant, when on a visit to London, saw a big spread of these coarser fish behind which the fishmonger had raised a huge ticket marked Witches. On my friend laughingly remarking to the seller that he didn't know a witch when he saw one, the man promptly replied, Oh well, it don't much matter, for a fine name suited them as didn't know what they was. End of section 27